Welcome to the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast, where legends share legendary stories. This episode, In the Dugout with Greg Swindell, we take a look at the life and career of Texas Sports Hall of Fame inductee, Greg Swindell. This edition of the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast is brought to you by the Fairfield Inn and Suites Waco North location. Come visit the Texas Sports Hall of Fame and when you do, book your stay at the Fairfield Inn and Suites Waco North location. Hi everyone, welcome to the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast where legends share legendary stories. I'm Jackson Michael, author of The Game Before the Money and writer-director of We Were the Oilers, The Love You Blue Era. In this episode, we celebrate World Series champion and Texas Longhorn pitching legend Greg Swindell. As of the end of the 2019 college baseball season, Greg Swindell still holds the record for most career shutouts in NCAA history and holds the Texas Longhorn career and season records for strikeouts. The Cleveland Indians drafted Greg Swindell in the first round of the 1986 June Amateur Draft, and he was already pitching in the majors for good that August. He pitched 17 major league seasons and won a World Series ring with the 2001 Arizona Diamondbacks. Greg Swindell grew up in the Houston area in a family that loved baseball. Greg started his baseball career as a six-year-old bat boy for his brother's Little League team, but he tells us that he also made an early relief pitching appearance. I had an older brother who was a couple years older than I was, and he started Little League when he was eight and I was six. And um, I was the bat boy, and I was always around practice. At the end of that season, I was six years old. I bugged them so much that they let me pitch the last inning of the season as a six-year-old pitching the eight-year-olds. Swindell tried football in junior high. He says that he had the arm strength but not the speed to play the game. He only played baseball at Sharpstown High School. Greg tells us about Sharpstown's incredible team his junior year. It was a, a group of guys who grew up playing against each other in Little League. And then once we got to high school in the Connie Mack and Mickey Mantle Leagues in the summer, we kind of all grew together. My junior year, I played first base and pitched, and I didn't even hit. We had guys that could just completely mash the ball. And eventually, the nine starters went to a Division One college. Uh, eventually, some started out smaller junior college, but eventually ended up at a a D1 program. The team made it all the way to the state championships played in Austin at Dishfalk Field. Greg's pitching provided a sneak preview for any Longhorn season ticket holders who might have attended. To walk out on Dishfalk Field and play in a state championship, it was um, unbelievable. It was a thrill. I threw a shutout in the first game against Texarkana and got us to the final game, and then we won the final game in extra innings against Fort Worth Southwest. So it was a pretty exciting time to be able to win a state championship, and especially to do it in that fashion in extra innings. And uh, Our center fielder, Mike Shoemake, caught the final out at the warning track in center field, and he caught it diving, and we won the state championship. So it was a lot of fun. 
It was in high school that Swindell gained the nickname Zeke. He tells us how the nickname came about. It goes back to my brother's name was Corky, and then somehow Corky became Cork, and when he got to college, Cork became Zork. So then one day they were like, hey, Zork, here comes Zeke. So I became Zeke. Greg mentioned earlier that all nine starters from his high school team played Division I baseball. Greg filled us in on the recruiting process and his commitment to play for the University of Texas. And I'll preface this by telling you his signing day was far from what it might be in today's college recruiting landscape. Nowadays, you know, with text messaging and cell phones and everything, it's pretty easy to recruit. Back then, you got snail mail. You got letters that came to your house, you know, saying that they would like you to come and see the campus and try to set up a date and and go. Fortunately, my best friend, Rusty Richards, was really good. And so a lot of college scouts and a lot of pro scouts were always there looking at him. And sometimes I would pitch and and they would see me. So we went on a couple trips, uh, mainly Southwest Conference schools. Went on a trip to Texas A&M to a football game and saw the campus with Coach Johnson. But once Texas came and they saw Rusty play, and I pitched, and I got a recommendation from a scout to they should sign me, too, at Texas, and that's how we went there. Rusty's brother played at Texas before us. I never thought I would have the opportunity to go there. They offered me a full scholarship, and that was it. We signed after a baseball game. We played and signed on the, the hood of a truck out in the Butler Fieldhouse parking lot our senior year. Swindell arrived on the UT campus in the fall of 1983. The left-hander was a future All-American, future first-round Major League draft choice, and on the path to a 17-year Major League career. You might think a guy like that had it easy and coasted into college ball. Greg tells us that that theory stands far apart from his freshman year reality. Through my freshman fall season, I I was ready to pack it up and go home. It wasn't easy. I wasn't throwing well. I hadn't gotten stronger. My velocity was down, and they had to talk me into staying. Some of my uh, friends and family, you know, stay there. Let's let's keep keep doing it. I mean, what else was I going to do? I wasn't going to do much else. And fortunately, the the weight work uh, in the weight room, I'd never done that, and. I pitched the very first game of the season in the spring and it not didn't do terrible, but didn't do as good as I wanted and um, didn't think I would pitch again after that. He did, of course, get a chance to pitch again. He says the combination of working in the weight room and tough opposition pushed him to succeed. We went to Arizona State and our first road trip and I came in in relief in the fifth inning of that game and I, my velocity was 92, 93 miles an hour. And I finished the game, went four-plus innings, and got a, got my first college win. And for some reason, my velocity was up, and it had to be the weight room. It had to be getting stronger. And also going up against Barry Bonds, Otis McDowell, and Mike Devereaux on that Arizona State team will make you throw harder and, and try harder. So it was... A big adjustment in the fall, but once I got to the spring, things started clicking, and and from that point on, my velocity stayed up, and I got successful. That wasn't the only time Greg Swindell faced off against Barry Bonds in a Texas ASU game. The two met up again that year, 
in the third round of the 1984 College World Series winner's bracket. Then we faced him again eventually in the College World Series, and he, he was 7-for-7. Seven seven. I think he doubled off of me his first time up, and then I got him out, so the record was like eight straight hits. So he didn't get the record, but he was 7-for-7. Seven seven. But it was um, a fun thing because we had a good relationship from college into the big leagues and kind of had a, a good camaraderie whenever he batted against me in the big leagues after we had played each other in college. Texas beat Arizona State that day, and the Longhorns were the tournament's only undefeated team after that, but lost their next game handily to an Oklahoma State team that featured future Texas Ranger Pete Incavelia. The Longhorns later faced the Cal State Fullerton Titans in the final game of the 1984 College World Series. Both managers later became members of the Texas Sports Hall of Fame, Cliff Gustafson of Texas and Augie Garrido of Cal State Fullerton. The Longhorns were the reigning national champions, but that day in 1984 turned out to be Augie Garrido's day and belonging to Cal State Fullerton. Augie clipped us in, in the championship game, 3-1. Uh, to one. Uh, We thought we could have been the better team, but on that day we were not the better team, and uh, Cal State Fullerton won it. During that next season, the 1985 Texas Longhorns set school records for hits and runs scored that still stand today. Greg and the rest of the pitching staff set a UT record for strikeouts. Greg himself posted an outstanding 19-2 record to go with a 1.67 ERA. He struck out 204 batters, still a school single season record through 2019. He also made All-American for the second straight season. The Longhorns returned to the College World Series in 1985. They again went undefeated through the winner's bracket, knocking off a Mississippi State team with four future Major League All-Stars. Texas advanced to the finals for the third straight season after winning the 1983 College World Series and finishing second in 1984. That team could have been one of the best in University of Texas history statistically-wise, because we led a lot of numbers in hitting. The run scored, batting average, I mean, it was a team that just could hit the ball, and we really had an opportunity that year to win it. But Miami beat us that year pretty good in the final game. So a couple chances at a national championship, we just couldn't get it. And, you know, to this day, it's just one of those things where you look back and go, man, we could have been part of a back-to-back-to-back if things had gone our way. Swindell spent his college career playing for legendary Longhorn coach Cliff Gustafson. Greg tells us what it was like playing for Coach Gus. It could rain all day, and then, you know, Coach would be, no, it's going to be fine, we're playing today, or we're practicing today, and sure enough, the rain would stop, and we would either have a game or practice. We practiced until it got dark every day. There weren't any restrictions on time limits or anything. We did some detailed stuff as far as little batting practice and fielding, but we played games. We played 10, 12, 13 innings every day, and that's how you learn to play the games. He didn't really say that much, but when he did, you listened. He got his point across. I loved Coach Gus. He, he let me pitch whenever I wanted to, and that's what a, a guy wants to do. He wants to get out there and, and compete. The Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast Previously produced an episode with Coach Cliff Gustafson, 
that also featured stories from former players Keith Moreland and Roger Clements. You can find that on the Texas Sports Hall of Fame's website, tshof.org. That's tshof.org. The Longhorns didn't make the College World Series in 1986, Greg's final year with the team. Greg made All-American for the third straight season and stood as a highly touted Major League prospect. The Cleveland Indians selected Swindell with the second overall pick in the June Amateur Draft of 1986. By August of 1986, only two months later, Greg was already pitching with the big league club. Every kid's dream is to make it to that level. Never in a million years did I think it would happen that fast. I mean, yeah, I pitched three games in A ball, got called up to double A to pitch on what would have been August 21st, but I got a phone call the 20th saying, no, we're pitching in Cleveland tomorrow against the Boston Red Sox. <laughs> uh, didn't really expect that phone call and didn't expect to be in Cleveland. And I had never been to Cleveland, Ohio, uh, never seen the stadium, never walked around. The first game ended up 24 to 5, so it wasn't that good of an experience. You heard Greg right. The final score of his first Major League start was Boston 24, Cleveland 5. Former Texas Longhorn Spike Owen scored five runs for the Red Sox that night. Austin, Texas native Don Baylor also played in that game for Boston. Swindell left the game in the fourth and played no hand in Cleveland's bullpen, giving up 12 runs in the sixth inning. Greg's preparation helped him in his second start and he pitched into the eighth inning against the Blue Jays in a no decision. He got his first big league win in early September at Milwaukee, and then won his next three starts, including a complete game victory against the Angels. He ended with a 5-2 and two major league record in 1986 after pitching in college that spring. That was the beginning of Greg's 10-year journey as a starting pitcher in the major leagues. We asked him about the daily routine for starting pitching during his tenure. You start, and then the next day, that's when I did more distance running and played long toss the next day to try to stretch my arm out. And, uh, that's how guys you know, back in the day got their arms stronger by playing long toss, meaning you know, 200, 250 feet for about 15 or 20 minutes and did a little bit of weight work. The next day, he threw a side, which is a bullpen, which is a real light workout, just to try to get the muscle memory going and get your mechanics good. And then for two days after that, you watched baseball, but still did your running and weight work. And on the fifth day, you were ready to start again. Greg won 18 games in 1988. That was nearly one-fourth of Cleveland's 78 wins on the year. He made the American League All-Star team in 1989, and Greg pitched a scoreless inning in the All-Star game best remembered for Bo Jackson's leadoff home run. Greg stayed number one in Cleveland's starting rotation for several years before a trade sent him to a one-year stint in Cincinnati. Despite the fact that Greg's career record stood above 500, that year with the Reds was his first experience pitching for a winning team. The Reds finished second in the NL West that year and would have easily made the postseason under the wildcard format. In 1992, however, only division winners made the playoffs, and Greg headed for another October at home. 
Although fans and scouts regarded Swindell as an outstanding pitcher, he still hadn't gotten to pitch in the postseason. And of course, that meant he stood far away from every player's dream of winning a World Series. When we return, we'll hear about Greg's long road to the World Series, and he'll also share with us what it was like to pitch to Hall of Fame hitters of his era on In the Dugout with Greg Swindell on the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast, presented by the Fairfield Inn and Suites, Waco North. Hi guys, this is the Rocket, Roger Clemens, and you're listening to the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast. If you're enjoying listening to our podcast, we invite you to visit the Texas Sports Hall of Fame in Waco. The museum tells the story of some of the greatest athletes, coaches, and moments in Texas sports history by using objects from its collection, which numbers over 15,000. And when you come to Waco, be sure and stay at the Fairfield Inn and Suites Waco North, located just a short distance from the Texas Sports Hall of Fame. You'll start your day off with a delicious complimentary breakfast, and you'll also enjoy the Fairfield Inn and Suites free Wi-Fi, fitness center, and pool. And since the Fairfield Inn and Suites Waco North is an official hotel of the Texas Sports Hall of Fame, you'll never know if you'll have a chance to meet a Texas Sports Hall of Fame member in the lobby. Welcome back to the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast, where legends share legendary stories. This episode, In the Dugout with Greg Swindell, is brought to you by the Fairfield Inn and Suites Waco North location. When we left off, Greg finished his one year in Cincinnati. That was 1992, and his first season on a winning Major League Ball Club. Greg still hadn't fulfilled his dream to pitch in the postseason. He did, however, accomplish another dream during that offseason. Swindell signed with his hometown Houston Astros in early December. The Astros looked to bolster their starting rotation that offseason and signed Greg, as well as Victoria, Texas native Doug Drabeck, who had recently won the Cy Young Award with the Pittsburgh Pirates. Astros manager Art Howe called the pair two of the top pitchers in Major League Baseball, and general manager Bill Wood said Houston could now compete with any pitching staff in the majors. Houston fans dreamed big that offseason after finishing the last season at 500. During spring training, Greg embarked on the ultimate dream, pitching in the playoffs in his hometown. Things don't always work out as planned, however. The Astros didn't make the playoffs during his time in Houston, and Greg says he didn't pitch as well as he had hoped in his hometown. He reflects on his time pitching for the Astros. It was fun. I mean, played Little League there, played high school there, played college in Austin. So um, to be able to do every part of my career in my home state and then be back in my hometown, I thought it was going to be wonderful. But I don't know if while I was there I tried to put too much pressure on myself or I just had too much going on around me with family and everybody being there or, or what it was. I just I didn't pitch well. And so, you know, it didn't leave a good taste in my mouth not being able to perform at the level I wanted to for my 
my hometown and my home team. We parted ways, and my career was able to keep going, but my time there, professional-wise, on the field, just didn't work out like I wanted it to. Swindell pitched three full seasons with the Astros and was released in June of 1996. The Astros filled the roster spot by promoting a rookie reliever named Billy Wagner. Greg finished 1996 where his major league career started, in Cleveland. During that offseason, he signed with the Minnesota Twins. He showed up for spring training, not knowing his career was about to permanently change. 97, the Twins signed me to go to spring training. And I go there, and in a couple spring training starts, I gave up a home run, a couple of home runs to left-handers. And I guess they had young starting pitching already. So fortunately, they didn't release me. Fortunately, they just told me, hey, we're going to bring you out a pen. So I'm like, great. I mean, because I thought maybe my career could have been over. First couple games didn't go so well out of the pen, but then things started to click. I understood how to get ready before I went in the game. You know, you had to get loose quick. They couldn't throw 80 pitches before you went in the ball game. And things really worked out well. I threw 115 innings out of the bullpen. My arm was durable. It could bounce back every other day. And the next year I pitched in 81 games, which is half the season. That move to the bullpen helped Swindell enjoy a 17-year career in the majors. He faced a lot of Hall of Fame hitters over that span. We asked him to grant us insight into a few of the iconic hitters he faced over the years. He first talked about how Robin Yount's stance in the batter's box could deceive opponents. Robin Yount, he can inside out the ball, which means if you try to pitch him in, you're doing him a favor. You think he stands off the plate, and guys that stand off the plate you think, well, he can't reach the ball away. Well, yeah, he can. And if you try to get it inside, that's throwing it right in his wheelhouse. So you just have to be real careful with guys like that because they can hit the ball anywhere. He then told us about pitching to aggressive hitters like Kirby Puckett. Kirby Puckett is a guy who will pretty much swing at the rosin bag if you throw it up there. So you don't really have to throw Kirby Puckett a strike. He's going to swing early, so you want to throw off-speed stuff early in the count and try to get him to chase later in the count because he did like to swing the bat and a guy that led the league and was MVPs, he doesn't get that way by taking pitches. So you know guys that are aggressive, you really don't have to throw them strikes. You can throw, like I said, off speeds off the plate, fastballs out of the zone, and they're going to swing and get themselves out. Greg pitched to Barry Bonds in both college and in the majors. He says the college experience helped him to pitch against Bonds in the big leagues. He also adds that Bond's eye and knowledge of the strike zone put pitchers at a disadvantage. Barry knew that his strike zone was about the size of a baseball. The umpires didn't call many strikes on Barry, and his eye was so good that if the ball's two inches outside, he knew it was outside and it was going to be a ball. I had success against Barry because I think our prior battles in college and just going at it, but Barry was a guy who knew the strike zone and knew the umpires and knew he didn't have to swing very much, but when he did, it was going to be a pitch that was obviously going to be over the plate and he could crush the ball. Barry Bonds, you never saw him check swing too often, and that to me is a guy who who sees the ball and when 
the guy is standing in the box and I have to throw this baseball in there, he knows exactly where it's going to go as soon as it leaves my hand. So you have to be almost perfect with guys like that. And lastly, Swindell told us about Tony Gwynn's supernatural ability at the plate. Tony Gwynn, I mean, he could see infielders move when the ball was on the way to the plate, and then he could have the bat control to hit it where they moved from. Swindell's left-handed relief pitching made him valuable to the Twins, both on the field and in trade talks. In 1998, the Twins traded Swindell to the Boston Red Sox at the trade deadline. Minnesota gained prospects in the trade, in which they also sent Orlando Merced to Boston. For Greg, it meant a real chance to pitch in the playoffs for the first time in his career. He appeared in 29 games for the Red Sox down the stretch and helped them secure a wildcard spot in the 1998 Major League postseason. Swindell finally got a chance to pitch in the playoffs for the first time in his 13 big league seasons. It's what every player plays for. I mean, yeah, if if you have good numbers, you're going to get paid. So the money's going to happen. But every player wants that ring. They want the championship because of the grind you put in with your teammates, with your coaches, with the staff, with everybody for over 200 games in a season uh, is is the ultimate and and to finally make the playoffs in 98 when i was with boston for the wild card that was the first time i'd ever been in the playoffs so that was like wow this is this is what it's all about this is the next level at the highest levels greg pitched an inning and a third of scoreless relief in the american league division series as boston fell to greg's former team the cleveland indians in four games Greg became a free agent that offseason. He still longed for a championship and wanted to sign with a contender. We had already moved to Arizona. We were living in Phoenix, and they made an offer, and my wife says, you know, we should take it. And I go, this is my 14th year. I want to win a championship. The Arizona Diamondbacks were a brand-new franchise that played their first season the previous year. The team lost 97 games in 1998 and finished 33 games out of first place. A second-year franchise isn't a place veterans flock to in search of a World Series ring. But the Swindells lived in Arizona, and the Diamondbacks eventually offered Greg a contract he couldn't refuse. And then they made an offer, and it's like, oh, we can't turn that one down. And then a month later, they signed Randy Johnson, and then... Next year, they trade for Kurt Schilling, so it's like, okay, this could happen. 1999 was Swindell's first year with Arizona. It was the team's second year in existence. But the Diamondbacks shocked the baseball world by winning 100 games and finishing first in the NL West. Greg led the team with 63 appearances and posted a 4-0 record with a 2.51 ERA. Arizona lost in the divisional round of the 1999 National League playoffs, but later acquired pitcher Kurt Schilling. The team later also added strong bats in Mark Grace and Reggie Sanders to a lineup that already included tough veteran hitters like Luis Gonzalez, Matt Williams, and Steve Finley. By 2001, the Arizona Diamondbacks had pennant-winning potential. They stood tall in first place in the NL West, a game and a half over the San Francisco Giants after a win on September 9, 2001. The Diamondbacks had an off day 
on Monday, September 10th. And then came September 11th, 2001. The Diamondbacks had a home game scheduled. That morning, however, terrorists flew planes into the World Trade Center in New York and the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. Well, everybody remembers where they were. I had dropped my girls off at school and heard on the radio. And as soon as I got back home, I told my wife, I said, you need to turn the TV on. And that's when the you know, planes were hitting the buildings. And um, now baseball means nothing. So now we have something else obviously in the world to think about. We couldn't do anything for six or seven days. We had to stay home. There couldn't really drive around, couldn't work out. I had a thing in the backyard where I could throw into a net and just kind of keep my arm loose and uh, stay in shape a little bit. America and baseball mourned the tragedy together. Major League Baseball postponed all games and didn't return until September 17th. The grand old game helped the country heal and return to daily life. Greg tells us what it was like from a player's standpoint. Once we got back, it was a thing where every time you went on the field, you didn't know if is there snipers, are there another plane, is there anything going to happen to the stadium as we go in? So it was one of those things in the back of your mind, but also for three hours, it was something that took the mind for everyone off of what was happening outside that stadium and kind of to enjoy baseball and enjoy life for a few hours. The Diamondbacks continued to win after the tragedy and won the National League West. Arizona topped the St. Louis Cardinals in the Divisional Series and won the National League pennant over the Atlanta Braves in five games in the NLCS. Greg finally arrived at a World Series in his 16th season. The Diamondbacks faced the New York Yankees, a team that had won the last three World Series. New York was still healing from the September 11th attacks. It was an emotional World Series that turned out to be one of the most exciting series in baseball history. Arizona won games one and two at home behind the starting pitching of Curt Schilling and Randy Johnson. Greg pitched a hitless inning in game one. The series moved to New York for games three, four, and five. And those Yankee teams of the late 90s and early 2000s seemed to have magic on their side all the time. They were also masters of capitalizing on their opponents' mistakes. New York won Game 3 by a 2-1 score. An error and a wild pitch contributed to the eventual winning run in the sixth inning. Swindell pitched an inning and a third of scoreless relief in that game. The teams played Game 4 on October 31st. The Diamondbacks scored two runs in the top of the eighth and led 3-1 in the bottom of the ninth inning with two outs. The Yankees had a runner on first and first baseman Tino Martinez at the plate as the ghosts of Yankees pass floated about Old Yankee Stadium on Halloween night. With two outs in the ninth inning, Martinez hit a game-tying home run off of Diamondbacks closer Byung Young Kim. I can see Yankee Stadium literally rocking. It was going crazy. It was pandemonium. It was, it was nuts. In storybook fashion, Derek Jeter stepped to the plate with two outs in the 10th inning as the stadium clock showed midnight. Jeter's bat wrote an incredible ending with a game-winning solo homer on a 3-2 pitch off of Kim. The Yankee Stadium scoreboard 
called Jeter Mr. November, as the Yankees had even the series at two games apiece. The team squared off in Yankee Stadium for a critical Game 5. Arizona got two runs in the fifth and led 2-0 in the bottom of the eighth when manager Bob Brenly called on Greg Swindell to pitch out of a two-out jam with runners on first and third. Tino Martinez loomed in the batter's box to face Swindell in a pressure-packed situation. Tino had hit the homer the night before, and then I had to come in the next night and face him almost in the same situation and got him out in the eighth inning. And so I go in the dugout, and Brindley comes up, and he says, if we score two, you're going back out. And I go, okay. And I'm sitting there praying, like, come on, let's score more runs. I want to get back out there. Not that I thought that young young Kim would give it up again, but I just I wanted to be out there. And we didn't score. Closer Byung Young Kim entered the game and gave up a double before getting two outs. And just like the night before, with two outs in the bottom of the ninth inning, the Yankees hit a game-tying two-run homer, this time by Scott Brocious. The Yankees later scored the game-winning run in the bottom of the 12th and took a three-games-to-two lead in the series. Arizona suffered two devastating losses on games they led by two runs with two outs in the bottom of the ninth inning. The Yankees tied and eventually won both of those games. Arizona also suffered a gut-wrenching one-run loss in Game 3. In fact, all three of those games were decided by one run. Instead of being up by one game or having already won the championship, the Diamondbacks were a game behind and got ready to fly back home needing to win both games six and seven. Walking out of Yankee Stadium to go to the buses to fly back to Phoenix, I saw Mel Stoudemire, the pitching coach for the for the Yankees, who was my pitching coach in Houston for a year. And I looked at him, I went, man, I said, we've lost three of the most exciting games of my life, heartbreaking games of my life, but I'm having the time of my life. Because it was it was so much fun to realize what was going on. It was the Yankees, and it was in New York. But then you look at those things, and you went, "All right, well, we got Randy and Six, Kurt and Seven. So we felt pretty good of our chances going back home. Uh, we knew, you know, those games they can't end up like that again, right?" The Diamondbacks crushed the Yankees fifteen to two in Game Six, behind the pitching of Randy Johnson and a 22-hit barrage. So it all came down to Game 7 in Phoenix. The score was tied at 1 going into the 8th, and Yankees second baseman Alfonso Soriano hit a leadoff home run. The one-run Yankee lead meant Yankee closer Mariano Rivera would enter the game. Rivera was truly one of the greatest and most unhittable closers of all time. As of 2020, he still owns the career saves record, and his career playoff ERA is under one. In fact, it's .70 if you're scoring at home. At the end of eight and a half, the Yankees led two to one in Game Seven, with Mariano Rivera about to enter the game. Then Game Seven came along again, and here we are. Soriano hits the homer in the eighth. They go up two to one, and now Mariano's in the game. It's like, oh gosh. Rivera pitched a predictable scoreless eighth inning. The score remained 2-1 to one in the bottom of the ninth 
and Diamondback Mark Grace led off the inning with a single. Then, on an astonishing play, Rivera threw wildly to second base on a bunt, and the Diamondbacks had runners on first and second with nobody out. When he threw it away, now you've got nobody out, runners on first and second. So you're like, wow, at least we have an opportunity to tie this game up. And then Jay Bell puts the next bunt down, and Mariano, he's really a very good fielding pitcher, gets through the ball quick and gets the out at third. And fortunately for us, Scott Brocious never looked at Jay Bell running to first base because if he throws to first base, he gets a double play right there, and we just have a runner on second, and we're down one, and there's two outs against Rivera. Tony Womack then hit a double for the Diamondbacks that scored the tying run. Two batters later, Luis Gonzalez blooped a single into center field that won the game and the World Series for Arizona. When the ball went up in the air and floated over Jeter's head, it took like 10 years to happen because that's the moment you've been waiting for your entire career. Somehow, some way, we were able to get a couple off the best closer ever in the, in the game uh, of baseball and walk them off uh, at our place. It was a ninth inning that it still is indescribable, and I still didn't realize it until you go back and watch on the DVDs or see it on, on the network um, how exciting it really was because when you're in the moment, you can't really get too high and too low. So to this day, it's still... When I watch it, we actually watched a little bit of it the other night, me and my wife, and I get teary-eyed watching the end of it because it was such a great moment in my career and the families of everybody. That Diamondbacks team had a lot of players like Greg, players deep into productive careers who had never gotten to a World Series. Guys like Jay Bell, who suffered heartbreaking National League Championship Series losses with the Pirates. Guys like Luis Gonzalez, Mark Grace, Randy Johnson, and Steve Finley in their mid to late 30s. Mike Morgan was in his early 40s and pitching in his first World Series and only his second time in the postseason. And they won the World Series by beating the Yankees in dramatic fashion against all odds in a year that the nation suffered through one of the darkest days in its history. All the veteran players finally got what they were looking for, and that was a a World Series championship. And in the fashion that we did it, after 9-11 and playing the New York Yankees, it was just, I mean, you could just see our faces. We were just completely drained when it was over, not so much physically because of the mental aspect of having to go into New York and and play the Yankees, and we got to go to ground zero, and and see the first responders and the fans and the people of New York that kind of brought that place back on its feet. And then for baseball to kind of lift the whole United States back up was uh, one of the best things that could have ever happened in my life. Greg retired after the 2002 season, but not before getting to pitch in one last postseason with the Diamondbacks. He got into broadcasting after baseball. He treasures his place in Texas sports history as a member of the Texas Sports Hall of Fame. Well, I've said it. I mean, I'm born and raised, um, proud to be a Texan. It's such a great state, and so many great athletes have played here and done well here. And to be part of that group, it means the world to me. And when I got the call a couple of years ago, it was, again, I'm driving down 
the freeway and I, I got teary-eyed because it's a culmination of a career of a lot of hard work and to be recognized in the great state of Texas as a Hall of Famer, is, it means the world. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast presented by the Fairfield Inn and Suites Waco North. Please remember to subscribe to the Texas Sports Hall of Fame podcast on your favorite podcast listening platform. And come visit the Texas Sports Hall of Fame in Waco. And when you do, book your stay at the Fairfield Inn and Suites, Waco North.